For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the Angie Spoke podcast. Today on the show, we welcome Family. She is a feminist thought leader that we have followed for years. We love her work and we were just thrilled when she agreed to come on to the show. Family is an organizational change expert and management consultant whose expertise is helping tech companies and other male majority organizations advance women, foster inclusion, and reduce bias. Family is a frequent speaker on what really works regarding inclusion in the workplace and on how ambitious women can outsmart bias. When we first invited her to the show, we imagined that we would speak with her about feminism and tech bro culture. But at the time of this recording, the world has been in lockdown due to the pandemic for three months and is just now trying to navigate how to open up and kickstart our economy. People are worried, exhausted, stressed, and anxious. And layer on top of that, Exactly 18 days ago, George Floyd was murdered. There are people, black and white, taking to the streets protesting around the world in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. According to the New York Times, in the last two weeks, American voters' support for the Black Lives Matter movement increased as much as it had in the preceding two years. We can all feel something shifting, finally. And it's up to us to continue these conversations, continue to learn, to question our own beliefs, the systems around us, and to continue to take action in the real world, even when it's no longer a news story or trending on social media. 
being a true ally is a lifelong practice. This is the conversation we had with family. Jenny and family have both been activists for their whole lives. Jenny in climate change, as you well know, and family in feminism, with a special interest in Black women in the workplace. So, as you can imagine, this is heavy conversation, but it's crucial conversation. Enjoy. So family, welcome to And She Spoke. I think I am like vibrating. I'm so excited to talk to you in the given climate that we are recording this. So welcome. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I'm so, so, so glad to be here. So I think that we need to tell first before we want to dive into the big topic here, I think, do you want to just share your story with us so people have an idea of your background and your degree, perhaps? Like, just what do you do? Sure. I know this is always so interesting in entrepreneur circles to hear how in the world people got where they are. So I have been a management consultant for a long time. And my degree originally was in women's studies. And then I have my master's in gender and cultural studies. And it was an intersectional feminism degree. So we were talking about anti-racism and racial justice back then too. And so I've been doing management consulting, public relations related stuff for 20 years. And after the most recent election of a president that's not my 100% favorite, I was like, I need to rethink what I'm doing. I was just helping big companies go from point A to point B, downsize, upsize. I mean, it was intellectually interesting, but in the soul world, as you two talk about, it was pretty deadening. And so I took what I knew from gender studies and from my degree and from all the work that I'd been doing all along. And I took what I knew about companies and how they change and what works and what doesn't. And then I looked at all the research on women in the workplace and what you know the big research firm says holds women back. And I braided them all together into a methodology for helping companies, especially tech companies, get better on gender and along other axes as well. So race and orientation, et cetera. So that's what I do now. So what gave you the courage to move from like regular business consulting and PR into this, like, you know, your real passion, your real love of all these gender, like, did you know for sure? Or were you terrified or something in between? Oh, for sure. Terrified. I definitely grew up knowing like, you're a one woman show. You need to take care of yourself, have plan A, B, C, D, don't do a risky thing in your career and barely do a risky thing outside of your career. Like no one in my family even like skydives or does anything dangerous. <laughs> so I got all the good girl. And now that I'm doing a lot more work on whiteness, I'm like, oh, those are also very like they're white messages too. So I slowly wove my new passion into my work. So I was just started taking fewer and fewer clients that really didn't do the trick for me on the soul level. And I started amping up the clients that were more about gender and diversity. And when was that? How long ago? Five years ago. Okay. Yeah. And so all of my volunteerism has been around these axes. So I've been doing this kind of thing for free for a long time, but for the paid work and getting tech companies to pay me for it, it was more recent. I love it. Normally... I think we would dive into the stories of that you would have with tech companies and what it's like to go into that yeah. room. But we've got some current events that we're all three of us are dying to talk about. So given 
the last few weeks since the murder of George Floyd, I just want you to go. What have you witnessed? What has your world been like? What have you been working on? What's frustrated you? What are you amazed by? Tell us all the things. (laughs) I love it. Okay. So four weeks ago, before George Floyd, but certainly after Ahmed Aubrey and 400 years of racism in America, I hosted a anti-racism training for well-meaning women and queer people. Just another version of a wake-up call to my community to say, like, this is a piece of the puzzle that if you're so jazzed about feminism and you're really trying to push forward the world in terms of queer rights and stuff, like, you have to have this other piece of the pie. And so I hosted that and 500 people attended and they were, and I sent out all the resources and they were super excited about it and in the chat and it was really live. And then George Floyd happened. And two things happened. The folks in that community who had seen my video were like, I now get it why this matters to me as a white person. And I received, I mean, I've done anti-racism trainings before to white folks and talked to white people about race and it wasn't, they're kind of like, that's cool, interesting. But now it's like what I'm observing is that white and other non-black people of color, like Asian folks, et cetera, are like, I get it why this is my struggle. And I also feel the invitation like I never felt before. So people are saying to me, I didn't feel like I could get into it before because I didn't feel it was my place and I didn't want to make a mistake and step on toes. Right. Which is also part of the white supremacy, right? Totally. Absolutely. Yes. And so in the Weeks following, I've been doing a lot of activism like everyone has, certainly in, in our circles and communities. And then also what's been happening is white-led companies, mostly white women-led companies from brick and mortar to coaching industry, as well as tech entrepreneurs, have been coming to me to ask, how can I do this right I wanted to make sure they didn't just want to put sort of anti-racist lipstick on a racist pig, right? I don't want to help someone write a note that sounds good, has all the right words, but then two weeks later, they're just back to their use. So I've been helping a lot of companies figure that out. And that's been really rewarding, helping folks who are like really cool brick and mortar businesses who have just been through the pandemic, who aren't even sure they're going to make it. They're like, How do we make promises to the Black community and for everyone that shops here when we don't even know if we're still going to be in business? I think obviously the pandemic has played into this movement, playing out the way that it has in recent weeks. And I'm just wondering, before this, what was your experience with these kinds of entrepreneurs or these kinds of small businesses in terms Mm -hmm. of activism in general? Like, Were they coming to you for other reasons or did they discover you? How did you come to, because you were working in big companies before. Yeah. Yeah. So I have this other business passion that I haven't mentioned yet, which is I am the founder of the Future Thought Leader Masterclass. And so because I know from my PR background and also from helping myself move forward as a thought leader, I know how to get people from basically zero to 5K in terms of being on stages and talking to the media and putting their voice out there as one that people are like, oh, I wonder what this person is saying, right? And so I took what I knew to bring myself into that light. And so I have been offering this masterclass online. And so that has a lot of entrepreneurs in it and brick and mortar folks who are really interested in 
getting above the fray, really, and getting the attention they deserve for their ideas. Now it's a lot about racial justice and ethical business and all of that stuff. Originally, the first few times I offered it, it was about just like, for example, women that just have awesome businesses and good ideas often don't get called by the media. So it was about helping them get the attention that they craved and that their male peers a lot of times were getting. Interesting. Okay. So I want to pivot a little bit and I want to ask you, what have you noticed, if anything, between how women run companies are responding to the Black Lives Matter movement versus male run companies? Have you noticed a disparity? That's so interesting. The white women run companies specifically are trying so hard to get this right. A little bit of that perfection thing and fear of making a mistake because then they'll be dragged, right? And whereas men are more, white men aren't really culturated that way, so they don't have that, that fear of that. The white men tend to be passing it off to a person of color within their organization and being like, hey, person of color who works here, maybe black or not, maybe read diversity books or not, but just happens to be a person of color. Can you manage this for us? Can you lead a diversity training? Which is problematic for so many reasons because it's unpaid labor. It's a person teaching the company about diversity when they may or may not, most likely may not. It's like what I'm seeing is that it's like a black male engineer or like an Asian engineer who's like, my focus has always been engineering. I've lived life as a person in the non-majority, but so they have to start from ground zero. So that's the difference that I've seen between men and women leading. I ask that because our audience and our client base is primarily women. The wellness yeah. industry is primarily yeah. women. Yep. And But we also kind of, we straddle the tech industry and the wellness yeah. industry, which are two totally different spaces yeah. in the world to operate in. And so it's always disconcerting, I think, for us. And mm-hmm. what I noticed is there was this huge movement after George Floyd's death to turn off ads, paid marketing. Mm-hmm. And so like the feed was filled, obviously, on Instagram and on Facebook. Our feed was filled with Black Lives Matter movement yeah. focus. Yeah. And that, yeah. was, that was great, except for like every fourth post was like a white tech bro ad. <laughs> and yeah. like those ads didn't get turned off. And it was like so jarring to see like who's not turning off their ads and who's not sort of being responsive in the moment to this. And I find it so interesting because, you know, as a small company that is also trying to do things right and also has built the company from a place of social and economic justice, that was a big part of why we created our company. It's so interesting to see like who benefits in these times financially and who doesn't, right? Like who chooses to step back? Yeah. I think that's a pretty provocative, unpopular thing to point out, but I'm like, huh, that's so interesting that women are like going to step back and sort of be, you know, like lean into the perfectionism and lean into the sort of values-based reason for building a business. And then, and then the men who are, at least for us, our competitors are like, hey, turn the ads up. It doesn't surprise me. There's a direct parallel with what happened even just as early as when we were only working with the pandemic. So originally from women entrepreneurs to even, you know, from tech to brick and mortar or whatever, they were slashing their prices. Women coaches were slashing their prices. Women in the wellness industry were like, all our yoga is free now. It's online and free. All of our sessions are free. Oh, I'm coaching you online. Now it's half price. It's like, it's still your wisdom. So I was doing all of this work. It was basically feminist work to talk about how to get clients in a pandemic because 
women as opposed to men running businesses for the most part, and this is much more severe when black women are thinking about their businesses, women think about the person who's worst off in their circle and they're like, well, if that person, what could they afford? Oh, barely anything. I'll make all my prices barely anything. But that's horrible for women's business, right? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And so I ran a campaign that was like, first of all, you got to think about your three kinds of clients during a pandemic, during any time, but especially as someone whose heart is open to those in your community who do have less or who have gone through a job loss or something. You do think about the people who have lost their job, et cetera, and you create special things like scholarships or buy one, get one or whatever. I do those in my business for sure. Then you have your regular people who are in the middle who have nothing has changed for them. Keep selling them your things at your regular price. And then also, this is thing that the boys do really well and some women coaches, the VIPs, right? There are always people, you do VIPs really well. I saw you have a VIP circle. You call it something different, but it's like the people who want to go deeper and have the funds to go deeper in the work with you. And they'll always be those. And those can help you sustain your level of pricing that you are doing for those who are hitting a hard time or who are just broke. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what we teach our clients too. I mean, it's the same messaging. It's like, you can't have a business unless you're making money and you have to charge enough so that you can afford to offer scholarships or give away Mm -hmm. services when you can. And so, I mean, I, I think to me, that's just a no brainer and coming from a nonprofit space, like where it was a really interesting transition. And there's so many women, especially in wellness who come from that sector. And it's so interesting because I was for so many years, never used to charging for anything, being an academic and having working in nonprofits and having my own organization. Like the people that you serve when you operate in the world that way are not usually the ones who pay you. So you're not, you don't have that energetic exchange. But then when you start a business, you have to operate as a business. And I think it's a really hard psychological shift for a lot of people to make. And I think a lot of women also, even if they don't work in nonprofits, that's how they parent or that's how they Mm -hmm. work within a community as a volunteer. It's interesting that your messaging is totally, totally on par with what, what we say as well. We had to do damage control with the clients that were like, free yoga, free yoga, free yoga. Oh crap. Now what do I do? I've just trained everyone to think that what I do is free. Yeah. Right. And now how do I like climb out of that hole? Right. And it's yeah. like, ah, right. Not everything yes. can happen free on Instagram, people. Mm-mm. Like this is not a business. So and yeah, Instagram is I'm not so free. <laughs> well, and that too. And that too. Like we should talk, we should have a conversation about Instagram. Oh my God. Absolutely. <laughs> so family, I want to hear about this. Okay. So this was my pressing question for you and why I wanted to interview you. <laughs> Because I love you on Instagram. I reached out to our podcast team and I was like, can you reach out to her and ask her to be on the show? Which we don't usually do. I'm so interested because I love following you. And for me, social media is is like a really hard place. Like it's super triggering. I, I operate as an activist in my like life around me in my community. Mm-hmm. And so like Instagram activism is a whole other thing and Instagram everything influencing is a whole other thing. So how do you balance sort of like activism on Instagram versus like the other work that you do out in the world? And what is the relationship for you? And how do you talk to the folks that you coach about the role of being active in social from a values perspective versus like actually implementing policies or working with legislators or anything else that they could be doing with their time. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, we have limited time in the day, right? 
So with your limited time, it should be trying to move the needle on real things that affect real communities, right? And yeah. that, which is not an Instagram post, to be clear. <laughs> That's right. Okay, <laughs> good. Dismantling the system, working on policy, getting people elected that support your views, right? Bringing your body to places where it's needed for activism or volunteerism or philanthropy or those kinds of things. Yeah. So that's by all means the most important thing when you're by the current post that's going viral right now, which is not even my thought is reading anti-racist books without acting is just reading. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole thing. That's from Code Switch on NPR. They sent out a newsletter and it talked about that. And I was like, oh, this is cute. I'm going to put it in a graphic. So because I, it's so important that people are doing a lot more work. Maybe it's the 80-20 rule. I don't know. For me, I can't bear posting online about something that my feet are not actually doing in the real life. I certainly pass along opportunities to donate to things that I'm not donating to every single time. But I feel that if I audit my spirit and my checkbook, it's certainly going to align with the kinds of things that I'm recommending on Instagram. So for coaches and people in the wellness industry, I've been doing a lot of work with folks who are in the world and on Instagram right now in this time of civil rights movement. So I looked at every company that I spend money on in my local community and I looked to see, it was eight days after Blackout Tuesday, if they had posted anything about Black Lives Matter. Because I live in Oakland, I split my time between Oakland and Sacramento. Those are cities where there is a big Black population and there is no excuse for people to not be posting. Frankly, a lot of liberal white wellness organizations and eco-friendly organizations were not posting. And it was so disappointing to me. My partner and I left our yoga studio of five years. We canceled our full premium VIP yoga membership at this fancy studio because they refused to post. Wow. Did they give a rationale for that? I mean, was it like an anti-post or a statement about why we don't post? So the first post that was up for the first eight to 10 days was a picture of 10 white men swimming in a pool together, a lake together for someone's birthday that was posted during every single other one of their peers posting about Black Lives Matter. That was a miss. So behind the scenes, I'm writing them. I'm like, I love you all. People, you got to read this article by Layla Saad where it's like, hello, spiritual white women. We need to talk about racism and other many other beautiful articles by many smart people. And I was talking about how silence is violence and all this stuff. And it just wasn't getting through. Then they made a post that said, we've always stood for nonviolence. Peace on earth is our thing. I hope folks can bring love to the table and then everything will be fine. So it was totally disrespectful and violent and harmful against Black folks who've been bringing love to the table for 400 years, but it just hasn't been working, right? Like, obviously, a million reasons why that's problematic. They lost almost all of their members and all of their teachers quit. Wow. Except the owners. That's huge. Yeah. So it has real ramifications. Yeah. No, I mean, and obviously, I mean, I was just reading about what happened with the wing last night too. I mean, that's a whole other conversation that I don't feel super qualified to talk about because I don't have a a ton of background information. But I, I mean, just the number of sort of businesses that are affected and it's fascinating. I think that where my concern grows out of this, obviously, I mean, I think posting, like making your views public to the people who work for and with you and who are 
clientele of your business is really important. Yep. Beyond that, I think my fear is that that is just like, you get that sense that you did something by doing it and it does do something. And, but I'm really wrestling, like that's not enough. And I'm just so concerned that that is the, and like your, how you message this one thing is it. And like, there's not any follow-up. And I think that this is going to be the work of the movement is sort of like really working with the people who've been making these posts and issuing these, these statements, because like, to me, like the statement it says a message of, of like where you stand sort of, but like, where's your money and where's your time and where's your body? I am struggling so much with how much energy is put on these posts versus anything else. I don't know how to deal with it. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) To be clear, this yoga studio lost all of their clients because it was the camp, the straw that broke the camel's back where everyone's stories of years and decades of racism came to the fore. It just signified that. But for the other ones who are don't have a history of actual racism like that people would come flooding forth with. They're just trying to do the right thing. So there are a lot of things out there. You've probably seen them too. They're like, so you put up a square on Black Tuesday. What are you supposed to do now? Right? And it does offer good advice. But you're right. There is not a structure for what companies should be doing. I've seen an anti-racist roadmap rolling out. I think people, I mean, people are certainly thinking about it. But I too am worried that this flutter of activism online, it's continuing to the streets right now, right? It's the largest civil rights movement on the planet. This podcast is brought to you by the Namastream software platform. Namastream is an easy to use platform that helps you build and sell your own courses, memberships, and live streamed programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. Unlike other startups, Namastream was created by women for women. If you're looking for a simple, streamlined way to build and grow an online business, you can learn more at namastream.com. So I don't want to take it away. I'm like such a, like I'm such an activist kid. I'm like the 15 year old kid right now that lives inside of me. But I also understand like psychologically when we take some small action, we get the sense that we did the thing, right? Like, so there's all this like evidence, like maybe you shouldn't write down your dreams and your goals because then you you feel like you kind (laughs) of did them and now you're not actually going to work for them. I mean, there's all that, right? So I think that's the piece that's like, okay, (laughs) but like the world is on fire. Like we are riding shotgun to the apocalypse for so many reasons. Like this is just like a really big, important one of the reasons, but like it's on fire. Like, what are we going to do? Like the fact that we like take something and we kind of try to make it beautiful and feel good about it. You know, like, like uh, who's going to have the most beautiful Instagram post about this terrible thing that's happening and and then what? And I, anyway, that's just my own. Yeah. I I just feel like, like the problems are structural, right? And so like when we start to own them individually and we feel like that's enough, it's not enough when the structure in which we all live, the economic structure and the social structure is fundamentally flawed. Like yes, the revolution. Hey, I'm totally with you. When I'm talking about (laughs) to my clients and the folks on my talk, like I always talk about the three areas that you have to address if you are going to be a real anti-racist or a real ally or whatever. One is going within and looking at how your white privilege and the white supremacy that has bolstered your family, right? Even if you were the poorest white family in America, you still had so the white privilege carried you a lot further. So looking at that and seeing how you carry it. 
then it's just listening. The whole thing has been like listening to black voices, amplify black voices, like really digest what black folks are saying and have always been saying. And then the action, which is the biggest chunk, right? I mean, the action is the biggest, biggest, biggest of like, go out there, like, as you're getting informed and reflecting, not waiting until you've digested every anti-racist book, right? And reflected into every corner of your soul. Like that could be 40 years and we don't have time. Like you need to be doing that as you're also doing the activisms that black folks are leading, right? And people are getting that. There is, I see more, I'm also skeptical because I do know a lot of people that pop up whatever they need to to cover their butts and then move forward. There are so many more people now, I mean, I've been doing Black Lives Matter since the beginning and anti-racist marching since the beginning, et cetera. But what I'm seeing now, because this was your original question, is white people, especially white young people, throwing their bodies in front of Black folks, between Black folks and the police, kindly grabbing the elbow of a Black person who's also protesting with them and moving them kindly behind them so that they're the white person's in front. Like, I have never seen that in previous protests. That was never a thing. That is a definite shift. That's amazing. That's great. Why is that happening? What's different about this time? There's a certain segment of white people that get it more than ever. I mean, that Black Lives Matter has done a lot of education and heavy lifting and educating their white allies and saying, here's what white, we need from white allies at protests. They say, we need you not to be in the back taking selfies like, haha, here I am on social media at a cool protest, but be with your body protecting Black people's bodies. Like, that's the one thing we need from you if you can come here and do this. Like, so Black Lives Matter has certainly done a lot of education of the white community. But why are white people ready right now? I don't know. You know, we're all out there marching at the, for previous folks who've been murdered and like, where are our white peers? I don't know. Why are they here now? I honestly don't know, but I do know that they're here and I'm in a panic to keep them mobilized. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm sure that the pandemic has something to do with it. I mean, people have more, I think there, there's a level of discomfort with life right now that people previously were able to sort of be in a bubble and ignore problems, right? Like when you're insulated from them and there's this, I think there's a sense of fear or like true instability in society and in the world that we didn't experience collectively before. That's interesting, right? So that the work that all of the movement building work, the Black Lives Matter did was like, is benefiting from the fact that the timing is right. Like, and that's what has to happen with any social movement is you have to do the groundwork and then you have to like hope that something plays out right with timing and other circumstances like politics or pandemics or whatever. And so, I mean, it's, it's a really a testament to the Black Lives Matter movement for doing all of that groundwork for years and years to get people ready and in a position to take advantage of the moment. And I, I don't want to say it as like, it's a good, obviously, like there's these stories, these human stories that have played out that are terrible, right? That I think also really captured people's attention. And maybe it has, I don't know if there's analysis on the, the amount of news coverage that these murders have gotten relative to others or, you know, who knows? Yeah, I know. I also keep making me think of, I just read this beautiful book called The Not Wives about the Occupy movement. It's so gorgeous. And it was reminding me of Occupy in 2008 and, or 2011 and how that movement really got people started thinking like, yeah, we shouldn't 
have to have extreme poverty when we are a college professor and we're working like two jobs. We shouldn't have to have no healthcare for a huge segment of our population. We shouldn't have to be out on the streets with no home and the biggest banks get reimbursed. I mean, that was the core crux of it, right? And then following on that, right? Whatever, I mean, this is not a political point about Bernie. It's about his movement. Like he brought to the fore to the conversation about you shouldn't have to have three jobs in order to pay your mortgage to support your family, right? Healthcare for all, education for all, right? And so that galvanized so many young people, especially so many young white people, but so many young people of all colors, because he always wove in criminal justice reform into his platform early on when, you know, that was just has always been who he was. And so that was building on the Occupy and then and Black Lives Matter and the fact that all of these college students are not on their campuses anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that has a huge part to do with it too. Mm -hmm. And what do you think family is like structurally? What, I mean, do you have I have my own utopian version of what I think, how I think things should play out. Like what, if you could wave a magic wand structurally, what would you change right now? I mean, I would take all so much money from the police and the military and give it to free college and healthcare for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, absolutely. And education, I mean, K through 12, making education not based on how much tax money come from property taxes in your either fancy or non-fancy neighborhood. Because then kids, it's a huge disparity, right? I mean, those are my big ones right now. And I would also include entrepreneurship training for all kids, especially kids of color in all the schools, because that's just as important as learning about food groups again and again, right? Like (laughs) people need to know that you can have an idea and there's ways to get funding and you can make it happen and you can work for yourself. And that's another way to have liberation. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. That's great. Yeah, Seth Godin has a great, like, little free booklet on education and talks about really how the K through you should. It's years and years old, but I anyway, I like (laughs) went through it one day and like wrote out all my thoughts after reading it, and then went to a school board meeting and stood there and read it a couple years ago. But and people were like, "Oh my god!" But because his his thesis is that public education was really developed around the industrial revolution. Like it's it's meant to teach children how to work in factories. Basically, the entire structure of public education was designed to like make people good workers in these systems that don't exist anymore. So I I mean I love that. I would add to yours just that like taking the money away from these publicly funded problematic entities like the military and police are really important. But truthfully, I think that we need to change the tax law so that people like Jeff Bezos don't, aren't able to accumulate the kind of wealth that they are and that the family (laughs) found. I mean, the other thing that this problem with nonprofits and social movements, like, why is it okay that we have family foundations where like these people accumulate wealth and then they want to do something good and then they get to decide where all the money goes? Like, it's so problematic to me as someone who's like, oh yes, Ford family. You get to decide what gets built and like even someone, anyway, like Bill Gates, who I think has the best possible intentions, like no one should ever have had that much money to get to decide those things. Mm -mm. Anyway, that's a whole separate thing. But so I totally am on board. And I think that these are the kinds of, I hope we can have these conversations beyond just posting things on Instagram. Like what structures do we need to like tear down and how do we do it? Like politically or otherwise, like economically. And so thank you for just being you and, and allowing, you know, space for this kind of, and inspiring people to talk about things that they otherwise would be silent about. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally down with the no more billionaire situation. I think <laughs> I honestly think once you make 350k, every nickel after that rolls out into the community. Like, what do we need more than 350 thousand dollars for? Oh <laughs> no, yeah. like that's great. Hundreds of billions of dollars, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, it's insane. Emily, I have just one last question for you. What is your current emotion right now? Like, what are you feeling in these current times? What's driving you? Yeah, I mean, in this very moment of this this bubble with you two rad badasses, I'm loving my life talking to you with other people who get it. When I click off the phone and I go take my dog for a walk, the enormity and the grief and the outrage will set back in. To be honest, I'm in... I'm trying not to be, but my real truth is I'm in a panic because I haven't seen white people follow through on anti-racism before for more than a blip. And Mm. I am having a real sadness and a fear that people are going to go back to normal when there is nothing normal about them going back to normal. That's the work right there. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this conversation needs to continue. I'd love to follow up with you in a few months just to see how things have settled and what your consulting practice is, what the world state is at that point. So let's do that. Do you want to move into Joy and Hustle, Jenny? Yeah, let's do it. It feels a little, it feels like a little light after this conversation, but let's do it anyway, because we're, we're all complicated beings that are complex and have lots of aspects of our lives. So we end every episode with a joy and a hustle family. So if you could share something that is bringing you joy right now in your life, in your world, and then a tool that also can help folks hustle in their business or their career. Yes. Okay. So my joy right now is the new season of Queer Eye. It makes oh, my I started heart. it last night. <laughs> oh, the gay pastor. Yes, I saw oh it. God, yes. I watched one episode and I'm like, I got to go prepare for podcasts, but I wanted to, oh my God, that's so funny that you say that. So good. It's Philadelphia. so good. It's so heartwarming. And those friends are all five totally themselves and also deeply serious about transforming the world and helping people yeah. uplift. So that's my joy. Well, I have a business tip and it's from my thought leader course, which starts July 1st. I have a business tip, which is a lot of people don't like public speaking and whether that's, and so the thing that gets them, the scariest part about public speaking is the first two seconds when you're standing up there on the stage and everyone's just quiet and your like inner voice of hell from the patriarchy is telling you all kinds of bad things about your intelligence and your looks and whatever. So the minute you get up there, you just do anything you can that makes people clap because once they're clapping, it's not that horrible silence. So you're like, anything from, isn't that person have a radiant outfit? Wasn't that a great talk? I'd be so glad to be here. And you start the clapping and then everyone's clapping and they're laughing and they're happy. And then you're like, well, hello, I'm Emily. It's so Oh my God. Can you just talk about, what was that future thought leader masterclass? Just tell us. We need to do it. All of us. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. So basically, over five weeks of videos, workbooks, and sessions with me, 20 badass women and queer people get together from brick and mortar to tech. They learn to become a thought leader, like step into their greatness, elevate their ideas to the media, into podcasts, and just out in front of their business. And 
There are in the first class, it's now been, or the most recent class, it's now been six weeks. People are getting on stages at Lesbians Who Tech. They have launched their podcast. They are launching one of them launched amazing anti-racist group where she's bringing together white women to like really dig in deep. They're just launching the things that have always been on their shelves and stepping into the kind of leadership that our world really needs today, especially from those of us with outside the box ideas. Do you run that live? Or is that all recorded? Like you just go through it at your own pace? No, no, it's live. So I send out, I drop the content of a video and a workbook at the beginning of the week of the section. People do it. And then we meet together live on Fridays and we go through it together and answer all the questions and get people moving. I love it. So where do they find it? Where can they learn more about you and that masterclass? Sure. Familyonthego.com is my website and familyonthego is my Instagram. As Jenny said, it's one of my favorite Instagram. I just, I love listening to you and watching you. And I'm, this, it's like literally one of my favorite. Oh my gosh. Besides like Hello Plant Lady, which is like, is light yeah. and fun and makes me happy. But yours is like, I got to see what she's saying today. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. Oh my love gosh. It. That's the thought leader feeling you will get if you join my course, folks. Ah, there you go. There you <laughs> exactly. go. There you go. Love it. Well, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure and we're doing it again. That's it. Absolutely. I'm all yours. I love you too. I'm going to go back and listen to every podcast you've ever done. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free become an online teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba teacher to sign up. It's totally free.